Thank you, Adam. I feel entirely fraudulent being here without Andrea. Among other aspects of our friendship is the fact that she's nearly eight inches taller than me. So I spend a great deal of my time in her company gazing up at her. And it's very odd to be here today not gazing up at her. And if any of you want to leave because she's not here, I completely understand. But I am going to try to represent her. (laughs) Oh, Adam. No, you're not allowed to leave. Um, To represent her as best I can. Um, Andrea is um, a little bit younger than me. Not a lot, but enough so that sometimes I say I am older than you. you way that makes up for those six inches. Um, She grew up in uh, New England, mostly around Buzzards Bay and in Massachusetts. Um, She went to uh, university, went to Schenectady, uh, Union College in Schenectady, I'm not pronouncing it correctly, uh, when she was 16 and began by studying uh, biology and did her BA, uh, uh, but I think not in biology, and (laughs) had a rather checkered academic life. Um, When we uh, compared jobs we had had, the worst jobs we had had, um, she offered being a dental hygienist's assistant and working in a box factory. I offered working in a pharmaceutical factory and working in a dry cleaners. So we competed quite heavily for um, who had had the worst job. Um, Perhaps one of the several bonds between us um, when we met at the Breadloaf Writers Conference in, I think we've decided it was 1990, but it might be 1991, um, was that neither of us had done an MFA. And that we both felt slightly foolish that we hadn't done a Master of Fine Arts degree, that we both thought we could just sit at home, read wonderful novels and stories, and figure out how to write them on our own. Um, And we talk about this quite often now that we are both teaching, she at Williams College and I here at Emerson College. Our friendship... um, began the year that we each published a novel. She published a novel called The Middle Kingdom, mostly set in China. And I published my first novel. She'd already published several other novels. I published my first novel, Homework, uh, mostly set in Scotland. And after the conference, we very nervously, or at least nervously on my part, sent each other our books. And then we both wrote letters to each other about those books. And that was really the start of the friendship. Having a drink at Breadloaf didn't really count. We had lots of drinks at Breadloaf. But the fact that we took the trouble to write those letters to each other was really the beginning of our friendship. And much of it has been conducted through letters and phone calls. We've never lived in the same town, sad to say. I went off to uh, teach at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and um, I was working on a novel I just couldn't, by hook or by crook, make work, Um, a novel that was finally published called Eva Moves the Furniture. And um, in between failing to make that novel work, I wrote short stories, and Andrea was also working on stories. And we would send them back and forth, but... 
I'd have to say, with rather cautious comments in the margins and lots of, this is wonderful and it's so brilliant and it's exquisite and it's gorgeous. And I just wonder if maybe are, are the, the comments were just very carefully sort of wrapped up in politeness. Um, and um, that politeness might have continued in a very nice way if we hadn't gone to the McDowell Artists Colony together. We've managed to get residencies at the same time. And I went there determined not to work on my bad novel, Eva Moves the Furniture, but to write something completely different. And Andrea went there hoping to write a long story um, about the um, the Irish famine and people emigrating to Canada to um, this island, this quarantine about this quarantine station in the St. Lawrence River, Grosse Isle, it was called. So she had a ton of books to do research, and I just had, you know, my dictionary. And um, we worked all day, and then in the evening we went to each other's st studios, as they were called, and um, exchanged pages, and went. Very gladiatorial, um, and um, we both um, we both emerged. We didn't emerge with books, but the following, not very long after, we each published a book. Andrea's wonderful collection of stories, Ship Fever, won the National Book Award, and my novel Criminals has an airbrushed baby on the front. <laughs> and. One of the pleasures of our friendship is that we're very different kinds of writers. And I thought I'd just read you the first few paragraphs of Andrea's novella, Ship, Fe Ship Fever, the title novella of this collection, and then the opening page of my novel, Criminals, to give you a little sense of how very different we are in our preoccupations. Or perhaps I should say how seemingly different we are in our preoccupations. And Andrea is a beautiful reader of her own work, so I feel very fraudulent reading this. Ship Fever, January 27th, 1847, Skibbereen, County Cork. Dear Lochlan, does this find you well, my friend? For myself, I am well enough in body, but sick at heart. Small excuse for not writing sooner. All has been confusion since our arrival. I have been traveling from county to county with two Quaker relief workers, an American philanthropist, a journalist from London, and various local authorities. Matters are worse than I expected. At Aaron Moore in County Donegal, the streets swarm with famished men begging for work on the roads. At Lewisburg in County Mayo, the local newspaper reports between 10 and 20 deaths a day, and I myself saw bodies lying unburied for want of anyone to dig a grave. In a hut that had been quiet for many days, we found on the mud floor four frozen corpses, partly eaten by rats. That same day, a dispensary doctor told me he'd seen a woman drag from her hovel the corpse of her, native, of her naked daughter. She tried to cover the body with stones. Does this give you some idea? Here at Skibbereen, I saw in one cabin a man, his wife, and two of their children, all emaciated beyond belief, sitting around a tiny fire and mourning a young child dead in her cradle for whom they had no way to provide a coffin. 
In some places, men have constructed coffins with movable bottoms in which the dead may be conveyed to the churchyard and there unceremoniously dropped. Those lucky enough to be buried at all have no mourners, often no more than a handful of straw for a shroud. So opens her magnificent novella, Ship Fever. And here am I embarking on my novel, Criminals. It's just so much less dramatic. <laughs> As the bus neared Loch Leven, Ewan studied the back of the seat in front of, in front of him, which more energetic travellers had used for self-expression. The sight of so many epithets, all that passion untidily scrawled in different pens, only deepened his exhaustion. He'd worked late at the office the night before and taken the sleeper up from London to Edinburgh. Scotland greeted him with her dourest morning face. Princess Street, before the shops opened, had a gloomy, dishevelled air and the castle squatted above the city like a toad. Now, through the bus windows, the waters of the loch were a rumpled grey, the soft outlines of the Lomond Hills barely visible through the mist. George loves Lindy forever. What kind of person, wondered Ewan, wrote such things to be read by strangers? Sow your seed, someone else had printed neatly. Support the greens. On impulse, Ewan took out a pen. If he wrote something, he would know how it felt. His hand hovered, but nothing came to mind. The long, glittering snake of love slithered round the corner at the first sign of his approach. His political sentiments? That seemed easier, though how to choose amongst them. Eat the rich, by mo sorry, eat the rich, by most standards, if not his, included him. World peace? Give bankers a chance? This is what people don't like about me, Ewan thought. Even my spontaneity is calculated. His sister Molly, for instance, whom he was on his way to see, could until recently have covered the back of this seat and several more with succinct advice. Recycle for a better world. Say no to exams. Stop eating dead animals. For two pins, Ewan would have put his pen away, but a faint cough drew his attention. Glancing across the aisle, he saw a young man, a boy really, in a threadbare denim jacket, watching him. The cold curiosity on the boy's freckled face reminded Ewan he was wearing a suit, pinstriped no less. On his metal now, he shook the pen a couple of times as if he'd just been waiting for the flow of ink, leaned forward and scrawled the least likely thing he could think of. Remember the craze. The uh, craze are famous London criminals and... Um, I've always been very happy I wrote that sentence because the editor who bought the book told me that he was standing over the waste paper basket in his hotel room waiting to drop the manuscript into the waste paper basket when he came to that sentence and thought, I'll keep reading. So, <laughs> so um, thank God I remembered the craze. Um, um, since Andrea published Ship Fever, she's published... Um, uh, another wonderful collection of stories, Servants of the Map, and uh, two novels, The Voyage of the Narwhal and The Air We Breathe. And I've published several novels myself. And I think it's true to say that 
both of us know that each of us has read every word that the other has published in many drafts, um, that our relationship has become um, indispensable to both of us. And in working together, we've had a lot of opportunity to think about what is really helpful to another person um, by way of advice or guidance or response in the different stages of writing a novel or a story. And, um, you know, writers are, are among the few artists who first they make the clay, as it were, and then they shape the clay into a beautiful vase. Um, you have to first sort of generate the material, I think, very often, and then, and then shape it. And so I was thinking about that this morning, that the word critic, which of course comes from the Greek word uh, for judge, kritos, um, doesn't really cover what we what we do for each other because we're not we are critics for each other. But perhaps more importantly than being critics for each other or editors for each other, we're also helping each other to generate that material to get the sort of form of the some shadowy form of the story or novel on the page, and then to, and then to start shaping it. And so I would say the early stages of our exchanges are very much um, about a certain kind of conversation when we're basically mirroring back to each other what we're seeing in the earlier, in, the, in those rough pages and asking questions, saying, well, what did you think, what did you mean here? Or what, wh where do you think you might go with this? Or... Um, should Sam be quite as rude to his mother? Is that, is that good to have that happen on, pa on page five? Um, and it's only at the later stages that I think we become more, more critical, more judgmental, if you like, of each, of each other's work. But the role, of, the role of asking questions is a crucial one in our, in our relationship, I think, at every stage. And... Andrea's work in particular, um, for those of you who don't know it, has the very unusual quality for a writer of following the same characters from novel, from story to novel to story. So Ned, who appears briefly in Ship Fever, is also a character in her wonderful novel, The Voyage of the Narwhal, and then makes another appearance in one of the stories in um, Servants of the Map. Um, I've never managed to get a character to continue beyond the, the final pages of a novel, but it's still on my, my to-do list. Um, and I brought some of our, our um, letters to just read you a few extract, extracts from. Um, and I'm going to read about um, two of the things we published most, most recently. Um, Andrea has a wonderful story in uh, a magazine which some of you may know called Tin House. Um, the story is called The Ether of Space, in case you, in case you missed it. Um, and I just am going to read a little bit from, from some of the letters I wrote to her. Um, and I should say that the story is set in um, largely around Philadelphia in 1919. And is about a woman, Phoebe, in her early 40s. She's a, um, she's a widow, uh, and she has one son, Sam, who's about 
12 or 13. Um, she's living with her parents to save money, and she's working, working on a book about science. She makes her living by writing popular articles about science. And this is me writing to Andrea on June the 12th, 2009. I'll try not to censor this as I read it. <laughs> Driving over the hill yesterday, up into the clouds and down again, I found myself thinking of Phoebe. And just in case it may be in any way useful, I'm going to tell you how my thoughts ran. Here is a woman, a widow in her early 40s with one son, living in her parents' house in Philadelphia. She's at work on a book about space and stars. Forgive me, I don't remember the title. And she's waiting for a letter from an old friend who can tell her the results of a crucial experiment conducted around the eclipse of 1919. Um, much of Andrea's work concerns 19th and early 20th century science, and she does amazing amounts of research to, to, um, to write her stories. And... Anyway, there was a very dramatic eclipse in 1919 and um, scientists from all over Europe sort of laid down their weapons, metaphorically speaking, and went, uh, went along the line of the eclipse to measure, to measure certain things. But Phoebe's connection with the eclipse, my letter goes on, goes deeper than the mere search for material. On the one hand, she was born on the day of an earlier eclipse and has a painting of the occasion which has helped to shape her choices of study. On the other, her husband was an astronomer. The book is, perhaps, connected with his work, and one of the things, perhaps, at stake is the results of, of this experiment and of Einstein's, sorry, and one of the things, perhaps, at stake in the results of this experiment and of Einstein's work, which is very much under debate in 1919, is that Michael's beloved stars may, lo may no longer be what they seem or what he claimed. Uh, Michael is the husband. The letter from Phoebe's friend comes, but it's somewhat inconclusive. The results don't entirely support Einstein's theory, even though both Owen and Phoebe, Owen is the writer of the letter, still seem to think that it's likely to be true. Still searching for answers, Phoebe goes to a lecture by Oliver Lodge, a venerable physicist who has fled the announcement of the results of the eclipse experiment and whom we gradually understand has a vested interest in maintaining his belief in the existence of ether because only if ether exists can he communicate with his dead son. When Phoebe realizes the territory of his lecture, she in turn flees What's dangerous for Lodge is the non-existence of, of ether. What's dangerous for Phoebe is the notion that we can reach the dead. Because if so, why has her husband Michael been so silent? Or why hasn't she talked to him? So you can see a lot of my early ambition in working with Andrea is to tell her what I see in her pages and how I understand her characters. I'm trying to hold up the most accurate possible mirror to her work. Um, and um, she does the same for me. I go on later in the, in the letter to say, 
Once again, I found myself thinking about the relationship with Michael and his role in the story, and whether this might not be whether this might be the key to bringing the story together in a truly satisfying way. Right now, we do not get very much information about the relationship between Phoebe and Michael, and what we do get offers a glimpse of a seemingly perfect romantic love. But perhaps I'm groping presumptuously here. Things might be more complicated. Perhaps, e.g., Michael did not always want welcome Phoebe wanting to be involved in his work. Perhaps they disagreed about something he was working on. Perhaps I don't know the dating of Einstein, etc. I'm not quite sure what I meant by the dating of Einstein. It makes it sound like they're going out together. Um, she she knows he would have been more with Lodge than with Owen. Perhaps Michael could be cranky and arrogant and difficult. I suggest. <laughs> um, I, I went going through my files. I um, found myself. Uh, first letter was June, two thousand and nine. In February two thousand and ten, Andrea is working on the same story, and I'm still writing to her about it. Um, the, I won't read you the first paragraph about going to Redbones. <laughs> I don't think that counts as literary, as literary critique. Um, 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 I sat down on the sofa and read your story through twice without a pen in my hand. It was such a pleasure to be back in the world of your prose with Phoebe. I knew you. I knew you had made many changes, and I think you've done so to wonderful effect. I'd worried just a little that I might miss the phantom pages of the story, particularly the contest, but I really didn't. Though I can imagine you using that to wonderful effect in something else, and I didn't miss them because what you have here seems to me to be working so strongly and so well. What comes through in this version, with real urgency, is what's at stake for Phoebe in this scientific debate around ether and Einstein. Could she really have been talking to Michael for the last decade? Has he been hovering nearby, and has she been ignoring him? Um, and I go on talking about this and about the the subplot. Um, a week later, on February the seventeenth, um, we're still talking about the story, but at this point, I've got down to much more specific suggestions um, about about the story, um, I'm, and I find myself remarking. Um, About attitudes to women, um, the role of Phoebe's mother in in the story, um, and her making uh, she's making shirts for, uh, I think for Russian orphans or someone. I'm sorry, I didn't read the story before coming here today. Um, and I comment on maybe just could we know just one more thing about about Michael? And um, I offer various much more editorial comments like. You know, should three people have brown curly hair, for instance, um, or should one of them be sandy-haired, perhaps? Um, um, and um, I don't know if these comments really helped Andrea um, make the story so much better, but the resulting story is is truly wonderful. I just want to read um, the first couple of paragraphs, um, just. For the pleasure of her prose. So this is the ether of space. There was a lot of chit chat to start. Some the usual Owen's health, the weather in London, a tactful acknowledgement of the tenth anniversary of Michael's death, but some not. 
Owen's sister was heading to Russia with a group of Quaker relief workers. His paper on variable stars would be published in the spring. But where was the crucial news? Across the ocean, at her desk in her bedroom in her parents' house in Philadelphia, Phoebe Cornelius scanned the pages of her friend's letter impatiently. Last March, after the fighting had stopped, some British astronomers had quickly organized an expedition to view the eclipse. At two different stations along the path of totality, despite clouds in the Gulf of Guinea and a distorted mirror in Brazil, they'd photographed stars in the neighborhood of the sun. The results had been presented in November at a meeting in London that Phoebe had been in no position to attend, and since then, nearly two months, and since then, nearly two months. It was already January, not just a new year, but a whole new decade. She'd been waiting for Owen to supplement the, ske the sketchy, sensational newspaper articles with some first-hand observations. And one of the things that Andrea and I talked about a lot at McDowell was the use of documents and letters and diaries in fiction, particularly in 19th century fiction. And many of her best stories have wonderful diary extracts, you know, obviously fake diary extracts, and, and letters threaded throughout them, um, in, to my mind, a very satisfying way. Um, um, I wish I forgot to say um, that another crucial part of our friendship is that we also read together. Um, so we're always picking novels, some contemporary, some... Um, historical, um, to read and comment. And that sort of is another way of us conducting this, this literary friendship and figuring out our intuitions and our biases and our responses, perhaps in a somewhat more neutral territory. So, for instance, we read um, the annotated Lolita together, which was hugely satisfying. And then we read a novel by Rebecca West that was actually published in the same year as Lolita, called The Fountain Overflows. And, you know, we often pick books in, in pairs or that have some connection to what we're both working on. Um, and that's been a, huge, a hugely impart, important part of our friendship. Um, I just want to read you, um, while Andrea was working on the ether of space and several other stories um, deeply rooted in science, um, I was working on my novel, The Flight of Gemma Hardy. And she was writing letters to me. So in November, on November 11th, 2008, it seems so long ago, um, she said, she writes, you asked for a simple gladiatorial response at this early stage, so I will give it thumbs up. On the evidence, oh, thumbs up, press on. On the evidence of these 96 pages, Echoing first Jane, um, my novel is, um, in some sense, a writing back to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Um, on the evidence of these 96 pages echoing first Jane's days before school, tortured at her aunt's house, hiding in the window seat, having her fit when she is confined, then being sent off to the school, which proves so horrible, I have to assume that the shape of your novel will continue to be determined by the events of Bronte's, which is to say that certain events will transpire at the school, after which she will go out into the world and eventually meet a Rochester-like person, and so forth. 
I mean now to pick up Jane again soon and read it through once more so I can see more accurately what you are doing. This paragraph was hugely crucial to my writing of the novel because as I read it, I thought, no, I'm not sure I actually want to, to do that. I don't necessarily want to write a novel which is fully determined by a novel that was published in 1847 and has never been out of print since that date. And speaking of women's friendships, I just want to digress for a moment to say that I finally visited the Bronte Parsonage for the first time this December um, on an incredibly windy, stormy December day. Um, the moors were wuthering, everything was um, just as it should be. And um, I saw the dining room where Charlotte, Emily and Anne Bronte wrote. It's a tiny room, even though it's been enlarged, and you can see the original table around which they sat and wrote after they'd finished all the chores of the day. And in the evening, they would pace around the table talking about their poems and stories. Um, candles were quite expensive, so often they were circling the table by firelight talking about their, their stories and poems. Um, so I realized going there that it was also um, for the three sisters that they worked so closely and intimately together that their work is very much about friendship between women as, as well. But reading Andrew, anyway, to, getting back to what Andrea said in her letter, I thought, no, I don't want to write a novel like, say, Jane Smiley's A Thousand Acres, however much I admire that wonderful reenactment of King Lear in Iowa. I, I want to be able to take certain liberties and I want to write a novel that um, people who have never read Jane Eyre can, uh, can perhaps appreciate. Um, so this paragraph um, about my 96 pages was crucial in sending me in a somewhat different direction um, while still looking over my shoulder at Bronte, also thinking about much more about the novel in my own terms. And of course, here at Wellesley, you have, uh, isn't Zadie Smith's On Beauty set, at, set around Wellesley? And of course, On Beauty is uh, her retelling of E.M. Forster's wonderful novel, Howard's End. Um, um, later in the letter, Andrea goes on to talk about the importance of tone and voice, the music of the, of the prose. Um, and she says, but this is a book, a very hopeful thing to say about 96 battered pages, but this is a book more than usually dependent on tone and voice. And so it seems important to sort out before you get too far in what your attitude toward this material is. Are you meaning for the novel to have the flavor of fairy tale, romance, not exactly realism, but something more archetypal? Or are you meaning for it to really reflect the 1960s, that uneasy moment when so much was retained that still had the flavor of the 19th century, even as other things were wildly changing? And I thought that was such a great way of describing the 1960s, at least in Scotland, and I think also in many parts of America, the swinging 60s didn't show up till about 1972, you know. <laughs> so um, there was a kind of time lag be before we discovered the pill and equal rights and um, feminism and all those, all those wonderful things. Um, um, a year later... A year and two days later, on November 13th, 2009, I find Andrea writing the following. 
I've taken you at your word and read very roughly this first pass, just trying to read as a reader, see how I felt as all the twists and turns revealed themselves. First, and most bluntly, but perhaps most importantly in terms of your readers, Gemma is an utterly appealing character, sturdy and plucky and smart and creative, so touching in the way she woos Nell and cares for her, so dear in the negotiations she makes between her own passionate nature and her fears that any expressions of that will end in disaster. And she goes on to talk about the introduction of various minor characters. So you can see in this paragraph Andrea's typical modus operandi, um, and also my typical modus operandi. I never send her anything, um, however polished, without protesting that it is incredibly rough, that it was written during 60 minutes. And it's just so embarrassing to ask her to look at something at such an early stage. And then I sit by the phone, hoping she will phone up and use the word masterpiece. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. but And um, she, in turn, um, you know, never delivers the most blunt um, criticism without first saying something nice to me. <laughs> so this is her saying something nice to me. We're in the second, third paragraph of the letter. But a few pages later, things are <laughs> much less cosy. <laughs> If I have a problem with how their relationship does unfold, it's not, she says, with this partial reversal and delay, but with how quickly things then shift. And in the paragraphs that follow, she offers a series of very trenchant criticisms. Um, but then at the end, she says, keep going. It can work. Don't give up. Um, <laughs> and that very much represents um, the importance of her, of her commentary to me that even while she's telling me the most painful things that cause me to rewrite hundreds of pages, she's offering optimism that um, I can get what, I, what I'm looking for. Um, and um, I, I, I sent her the letter just before I sent it to, to my agent, um, who offers a very binary reading um, of my work, even, I mean, even beyond gladi gladiatorial, I would say. Um, and one of the things I was pleased to see Andrea um, suggesting was that one way out of my problem of were the 1960s going to be the swinging 60s or the Victorian 60s was her suggestion was to make sure that the characters were aware that things were still rather Victorian. And so in, in the novel as it exists now between covers, I tried to make them aware that changes were coming even if they hadn't reached them yet and even if the precise nature and effect of those changes couldn't yet be measured. Thank you. Thank you.